children are dismissed. And ladies, thank you. What a very special morning of song and praise. And we're glad that that retreat went well. And then we've got new meaning to the word PMS. <laughs> the title of the message this morning, which wasn't in your bulletin, wasn't quite sure just how I wanted to title this. And it's Hosanna. Please save us, Lord, we pray. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a Hebrew word. It just carried over into Greek, but it still remains the Hebrew word. It's used in the Psalms, especially in Psalm 118 and following, which are Messianic Psalms. And the word literally means save now or save please. Or we might translate it, please save us now, Lord, we pray. On Palm Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, God answered that prayer in less than a week. When Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, died on the cross for sin. Now, before we get into the heart of the message today, I want to take the liberty to ask you some theological questions. For whom did Christ die? Are you sure that our Lord Jesus Christ died for your neighbor and your friend? Are you sure that he died for you? In that great hymn that we sang in days past called The Old Rugged Cross, was it for a world of lost sinners that Jesus was slain, as the first, first stanza says, or should we sing only the third stanza, which says it was for me that Jesus suffered and died on that old rugged cross? When Jesus uttered those final words, it is finished. As part of his dying breath on the cross, which literally means paid in full, for whom was it finished? For whom was it paid in full? Was it paid in full only for his own people? It does say in Matthew that he will save his people from their sins. Or was it paid in full for just his sheep? For it says in John, as the good shepherd, he would give his life for his sheep. Or maybe we should say it was paid in full for the church because it does say in the Bible that Jesus gave his life for the church. Or perhaps it might be best to think, as many teach today, and some of you may have been exposed to this teaching, that it was paid in full for many people, that is, the elect, the ones God has chosen to bring to faith. And salvation. After all, Jesus did say that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Or maybe we should say it was paid for all people. Paid in full for all people in all places in all times. 
For it does say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For whom did Christ die? Did he die for Judas Iscariot? Did he die for Pontius Pilate? Did he die for the false teachers? Did he die for Adolf Hitler? Did Jesus suffer and die for people like this? And if he died for them and for all people, then why aren't all people saved? Why would anyone go to hell? And if they aren't saved, then it seems that he died for nothing as far as unsaved people are concerned. Did his death accomplish anything for these people who do not believe and therefore are not saved? For whom did Christ die? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you might teach us many things from your word today. But may those things that we learn change our attitude. Our attitude toward what we commonly call lost people, unbelievers, people who aren't saved. Father, help us to love them, to pray for them, to consider them in our life, in our families, in our friendships. We pray you'd help us today to glean from Scripture your heart for those that have not yet believed in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. A man stands at Madison Avenue and 42nd Street in the heart of Manhattan. He's waiting for the light to change. Who is he? To a statistician standing at his window high above, he is a unit in the mass. One individual in about four billion people. To a biologist working on the floor below, the man serves as an interesting specimen. To a physicist next door, he is a formula of mass and energy. And to the chemist nearby, a compound of elements. A historian glances out the window and thinks of this man as a tiny speck in the ongoing river of history. A social scientist accounts for him as an animal modified and conditioned through reflexes. Across the street, a psychiatrist pauses in an interview with a patient and looking down on the street level below notices the man and thinks of the man as a mental type who deviates in one or two significant ways from the norm. On the pavement below, a salesman is standing in front of his bookstore, or pardon me, in front of a store, and he looks at the man as a potential customer. A postman passing by considers him as a zip code. A politician campaigning in the city values the man as a vote. To his physician, whose office he just left a few moments ago, He's a gallbladder case, gallbladder case on the way to recovery. To his dentist, he's a gold inlay. His pastor, 
who has not seen him in several weeks, worries that he may be a backslider. His wife, to whom he has been married for 20-some years, regards him as a faithful husband and a good provider. Who is the man standing on the sidewalks of New York City waiting for the life to change, the light to change? According to the Bible, he is a man for whom Christ died. He is a man God so loved that he sent his only begotten son to die for him. That if he should believe in him, he should not perish but have everlasting life. He is a man for whom Christ experienced suffering and death. We read in Hebrews 2.9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste. And the word taste in Scripture has the idea of to experience something that he might taste death for everyone, for everyone. That man on the corner is a man for whom Jesus Christ himself, in his death, is the propitiation for that man's sins. What word mean, Arch? Propitiation. We don't hardly ever use that in our language. That is, the sacrificial death of Christ so completely and fully propitiates or satisfies God's justice that no man, including the man standing on the corner in New York, whoever he is, is condemned to hell on the basis of his sins. Let me repeat that. The sacrificial death of Christ so completely and fully satisfies God's justice that no man, including this man on the corner, whoever he is, is condemned to hell on the basis of his sins. You say you're yanking my chain. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John begins... My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation. The satisfaction is another word that might work there. For our sins, for those of us who are saved from hell, And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, even the unsaved. The man on the corner is also a man for whom Jesus Christ in his death paid the price to set him free from sin and death. In 1 Timothy we read chapter 2 that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The word ransom is just what the word says. 
if somebody would have kidnapped my daughter and held her for ransom for an undisclosed amount of money, I would have had to pay that money in order to secure her release. Jesus is saying in this passage that he gave himself as a payment for all to secure the release of all people. Jesus Christ gave his own life and death as a ransom for all people, even the worst of the worst. You say, I don't believe that. Notice this. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people. Peter is exhorting Christians, going back into the Old Testament. Even as there will be false teachers among you, speaking to the church, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, redeemed them, paid the ransom for them, and will bring on themselves swift destruction. Are these men saved? On down in verse 12 we read, But these, like natural brute beasts, referring to these false teachers, who, got, who the Lord bought with His own life, who He redeemed. The word bought there is the word redeemed. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. No, they are not saved. These are bad dudes. Now, in our culture, we, we don't think false teachers are bad dudes. You know, we're not supposed to conflict with people that have different opinions, tolerate everything. But in God's estimation, they don't get much worse than a false teacher. And he wants them done away with and out of the church. They're bad dudes, but Jesus died for them. The worst of the worst in God's book, because they've been planted by Satan to deceive God's people. But here we learn that Jesus in his death paid the price to set even these Christ-rejecting false teachers free from sin and death. Pastor, I'm not following this. That man, that man on the corner for whom Christ died is a man in whom God was reconciling to himself through Jesus Christ, not imputing his trespasses against him. That sounds strong. Listen again to what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing. That is not reckoning, not taking into account their sins and violations of his moral law written in their very hearts, not adding up the charges for the purpose of prosecuting them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In Acts chapter 17, this is what, what Paul is driving at when he says he was preaching to a group of non-believers in the city of Athens. These were philosophers and educated people who were challenging Paul at every turn. 
They love to philosophize and argue and so forth. And Paul preached a message to them. And in the message, he says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, and ought not, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins, and to return to Him, to God, through Jesus Christ, to be reconciled to God. That man on the corner is in the final analysis a man for whom Jesus Christ is his personal Savior. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Did you catch that? Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men especially of those who believe. It's a matter of degree. In some sense, He is the Savior of all men. But in the most complete and fullest sense, He is the Savior of those who believe. Jesus is the Savior of all men. All people benefit in some measure from what Jesus Christ did on the cross even before they believe and even before they know it. But Jesus Christ is especially the Savior of those who believe and that he did what He did on the cross will benefit them beyond the measure of this life. The point is this. The man who stands on the corner in New York City, whether he is a believer or he is an unbeliever, we don't know. But one thing is for sure. Jesus Christ is genuinely, that man has actually and genuinely been impacted to some extent, to some extent, by the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. To some extent, the death of Christ has impacted his very life in some very real but measured sense. Jesus Christ is the personal Savior of every person. Now take a moment and think about a non-believer in your family, in your circle of friends. Just start thinking a little bit. Think about somebody who's not a believer. Someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. It doesn't mean we don't, we're not talking about people who believe Jesus was a nice person or that he can help them out with their problems, but someone who has not believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Now, I have a man in mind, a man raised to value religion, an intelligent man raised on the teachings, however, of evolution and humanism in our public schools, surrounded by believers in Jesus Christ and his family, yet a man that will not believe. Now, the Bible teaches us that this man, along with the unbelievers that you're thinking about right at this moment, that these unbelievers have actually been impacted by the person and work of Christ on the cross, even though they do not even realize it. How? How have they been impacted? 
Again, I want to take you back to three theological terms that I mentioned just a moment ago, only now I want to sort of bring the focus down and crystallize what I'm saying. Three theological terms, very colorful terms, biblical terms that tell us how Jesus Christ in his death has impacted the unbeliever as well as the believer. First, propitiation. Propitiation. Jesus Christ in his death is the propitiation for the unbeliever's sins. That is, as I said, he fully and completely satisfies God's justice so that our friend or neighbor will never be condemned to hell because of the sins he has committed. Unbelievers often feel like believers are judging them. Have you ever noticed that? I've heard that before. Somebody, I remember telling me that early on, after they, even after they became a Christian, didn't want to get too close to unbelievers. That, you know, they, they felt like that they were being judged. They weren't. There's nobody in this church that I know of that judges unbelievers or judges believers for the most part. But what they sensed was that God was judging them and the believers stood for God. They were overcome with a sense that God is judging them and will likely condemn them one day for the sin and wrong they have done. But only if they knew that God was, wasn't judging them and condemning them. Only if they knew that. Because He did judge and condemn Jesus for what they did. For their sins. The sins of that unbeliever... Jesus was judged for those sins. So the unbeliever cannot be judged for them. Jesus died for those sins. The unbeliever will not die in hell a second death forever because of his sins or her sins. If only the unbeliever could be told that God isn't angry with you. God isn't judging you. God isn't waiting to lower the boom upon you. Jesus died for your sins. You won't be judged for them. On the other hand, now all that you need in order to be declared just in the eyes of God who is the judge of all men, in a sense, is to be declared just before Him, a holy God, is eternal life. In other words, God is not going to judge you for what you've done wrong. He's not going to judge you for the sins you've committed. He's going to judge you on the basis of whether you have eternal life or not. He will declare you just if He sees that you have eternal life. His life. We'll explain about that in just a moment. Second word, reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling our friend or our neighbor to Himself. 
The point is, is that no longer is there a barrier blocking any person's enjoyment of, a, of developing, I should say, a friendship with God, a close personal relationship with God. There's no barrier anymore. Before I became a Christian, I remember it was hard for me to think of God in any other way than as a tyrant who always said no. A killjoy. Having a close personal relationship with God was foreign to my way of thinking. Deep down, I was convinced that a barrier existed between us. A barrier of sin and wrongdoing that had characterized my life. Oh, how God wanted to save me and to have me come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth that indeed the barrier is in my imagination as an unbeliever. It no longer exists. It's been removed by the death of Christ on the cross. The way's open. Through Christ. Third word, redemption. Christ in his death. The word redeem means to, it's basically the word purchase or buy or bought. Sometimes it is combined with another Greek word that means to, to buy with the idea of setting someone at liberty, freedom. That's why it's translated ransom sometimes. Redemption. Christ in his death paid the price to set our friend and our neighbor free from sin and death. The controlling power of sin over a life, that ever-present fear of death, Jesus paid it all. The prison doors that have held every person's life captive to sin and death have been flung wide open at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus paid the ransom price. He paid the price of our redemption. Our deliverance from sin and death. And now all that is needed is for us is to walk out of, out of prison. Through faith in Jesus Christ. How often in the quagmire of human misery and tragedy do we hear someone say, I just couldn't help myself. It was like I had no power to overcome the temptation. No ability to cope with my fear of death. All I wanted to was to give in and then escape into another world of my own making. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, He provided a way out of such a life. In years past, I used to view these three words as describing provisional benefits for unsaved people. That is, these benefits are provided to all people, but they are only actually experienced by those who believe. While it is true that the full and complete experience God intended from these benefits can only be experienced by those who believe in Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which these three words speak of benefits that do impact every life of every person that lives in this world, even if they do not realize it. Every person who lives in this world 
has been set free. They've been set free. Free of being judged and condemned for their sins. Free to enjoy a relationship with the living God. Free to live a life no longer dominated by sin and the fear of death. Every person that lives in this world has been set free, including the man at 42nd Street in Madison. If propitiation and reconciliation and redemption are only benefits for believers and only provisional benefits for unbelievers, then passages which speak about these benefits for all mankind should be qualified with the word provisional. In other words, we should talk about a provisional satisfaction or a provisional removal of the barrier or a provisional ransom price that's paid. But the Bible doesn't do that. It says there's no provision. It's been done paid. Jesus paid it all for everyone. Not just the elect, but for everyone. Does that suggest that all men will be saved? Definitely not. Bring being free of being judged and condemned for the sin and wrong we have done in life does not make us just before God. We won't be condemned for the sin and the wrong we've done, but that doesn't mean that we have declared just before God. While the death of Christ satisfied the justice of God regarding sin and wrongdoing in our life, the death of Christ does not automatically regenerate a man or woman in order that God might declare them just before him. In order to be declared just by God, we need to be regenerated. The word regenerate means to be born again. You've heard that term. To use another word that Jesus used quite frequently, we need to have eternal life, God's life, which we need to possess so that when God, when we stand before God and God looks at us, he says, I declare this person just because I see he has my life. It's not simply because his sins and his wrongdoings have been removed at the cross. It's because by faith in Jesus Christ, he has eternal life. And I see him now not only as someone who is not guilty of sin and wrong, but as someone who possesses my life, eternal life. And therefore, I declare them just and right with me and ready to live with me in eternity. Those who do not believe are under God's condemnation. Not because of the sin... And the wrong that they've done, but because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. That's the new twist in Scripture. People are not condemned because of what they did wrong. They're not condemned because of the sin that they've committed. They will be condemned because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, they will be judged and condemned to an eternal hell. Not because of their sins because the, their name was not written, as the Bible says in the Lamb's book of life, through faith in Jesus Christ. 
the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 16 and 18. Most of us know 16 backwards and forwards. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what a precious verse that is. But 17 and 18 are just as precious and just as important. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because of the bad things that he has done. It doesn't say that. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, that's the only reason he will be condemned. Revelation chapter 20. Most of us are familiar with this wonderful passage. I guess I wouldn't call it wonderful, but it's a passage that's sobering. It's a passage of God's eternal throne of judgment. And here's the picture. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Jumping down to verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. They were shown from their books that were opened about their works and how those works would not make it possible for God to declare them just. But the reason they were condemned is because their name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. Being free to enjoy a friendship with God does not automatically mean we will enjoy such a friendship. We're moving on now to reconciliation. All men have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. We're told that in Scripture. No longer are men enemies of God. There's that sense of a feeling that God is angry with me. He hates me. He's, he's mad at me. That unbelievers sometimes feel. And I know I felt that when I was an unbeliever. But the Scriptures are teaching, God isn't mad at me. He's not angry with me in that sense. In fact, He has sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins and to, recon and to reconcile me to Himself. No longer am I, his, I, am I His enemy. But now friendship with God can only can be mine, but can only be approached through faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, we read, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. That's a past tense. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's speaking to Christians. We have a ministry. A ministry of reconciliation. What's that mean? He goes on. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses, their sins, their violations to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We need to get out there and tell the world Jesus Christ in his death has reconciled you to God. Now then we are ambassadors of God, or of Christ, as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
That's our message. We can go out into the world and say, there's no need to fear God. God isn't waiting to drop the boom on your life. Rather, He's sent His Son to die for you. And He's inviting you to come. And He's saying, when you come, the door to friendship with me is open. There's no barriers. Be reconciled. Reconciliation is always a two-party affair. God has made it possible to be reconciled. But then we have to take the initiative and want to build that friendship with God through Jesus Christ. I think of, in my past, I've known situations where there have been two people that have been at odds with each other. One person was full of of grace, but was guilty of committing the violation. The other person just couldn't forgive, just hated that person. The person did all that they needed to do to remove the barrier, to provide for a basic reconciliation. But the other person refused to walk through that door and embrace that person as their friend. How sad. That's how some Christians live too. But non-Christians in particular need to realize that God's done it all. He's made it possible. All you have to do is go up and throw your arms around Him in Jesus Christ. That's our word of reconciliation. Being free to live a life not dominated by sin and death does not mean living a life that is pleasing to God. A life pleasing to God begins with keeping His most important work. And what is the most important work of God when it comes to pleasing God? It is believing on Jesus Christ in whom whom He has sent. When it comes to the ministry to unbelievers, Jesus Christ in His death has set them free from the controlling power of sin and the fear of death. But the kind of life will not please God. Will not please God. What pleases God is the work of believing in His Son. In this particular passage, there were some unbelievers who asked Jesus how to live a life that would be pleasing to God. In John 6, Jesus said, Then they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now He could have said, You've been set free. Or you will be set free from the vantage point at that point through my death on the cross. But instead, he said, this is the work of God. Let's start at ground zero. The work of God, Jesus said, is to believe on him, in him whom he sent. Propitiation. Reconciliation. Redemption. All three of these terms 
have enormous impact upon a non-believer. And they basically say that non-believer has been set free. Set free in very special and particular ways. Set free to enjoy the life that God would want them to enjoy. To become all that God wants them to become. To become a close and personal, intimate friend of God. But going that next step is going to require the next step, which is to believe in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. That's why he hung there on the cross. He died for the sins not only of Arch, but of every person, man, woman, and child in this world. All of us take advantage of that. But we do not enter into the full and complete value of that salvation until we believe in Jesus Christ. How does this impact our life? I want to take you back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul was writing Christians, and he said this, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, all women, all children, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, all women to be saved, all children to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom to all to be testified in due time. The first thing that I would like to leave with you is that we've been committed the word of reconciliation. That's our responsibility. We need a people that are out spreading the word of reconciliation, the word of eternal salvation. We need to be busy, willing to always speak up for our Lord. But lastly, we need to be praying for people. We need to be praying for people. I've known over the years we've had a number of women in our church who come to church without their husbands. Their husbands are not believers. And we've prayed for those husbands. And they've prayed for those husbands. And I tell you, God is pleased when we pray for them. Because He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. That's what He wants. And so we need to be busy helping them to come to the knowledge of the truth but we also need to be busy praying. Praying for those aunts and uncles. Praying for those, those friends. Those people we work with. Praying for people around us who aren't yet believers. Praying that God will give us a chance, an opportunity to share with them knowledge of the truth. Or that someone else will have that opportunity that can reach them in a unique and particular way. One of the great teachings of the Bible is God's universally wide, all-encompassing love of people in all ages, in all times. 
no person God doesn't love. And the emblem of that love is the cross. When Jesus hung there dying for our sins, He was dying not just for mine, but for the sins of all the world. Every man, woman, and child, and that is saying clearly, He loves them. We need to love them. We need to have more of a heart for non-believers. We need to be mindful of, of what's going on in their life. We need to pray for them. And we need to look for those opportunities to help them come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this message today and impact us in the way that you would want to impact each one of us. We're all unique, uniquely gifted, uniquely challenged. We have ideas and thoughts, many things that are going through our minds. And we pray, Father, that you might help us to understand the truth and how it relates to us and how we might share it with lost people people that are so needy. Help us, Lord, to take that word of reconciliation and spread it around and to pray for those about us. We ask it in Jesus' name.